Have you not got any shoes on? Are you offended by that? Offended by that? We keep our shoes on <laughs> in this proper studio. I don't care, Christy. I'm doing it my way. Uh, that's the most played funeral song. Nah. Unless you're Noel Edmonds, who does not believe that we die. Can we say it? Balls of energy? We don't die, we're just balls of energy. Yeah. Well, technically we are all just balls of energy and matter. But that does not relate to the energy system in the sense that we are not kind of powering the plants. Yes, true. And also, we definitely do die, I think. So that would be wrong, in my opinion. (laughs) Way to bring the bad news, Stephen. (laughs) Hello, my name is Kirsty Stiles and welcome to the weekly economics podcast brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. This week, we've got Stephen Devlin, natural resources economist from NEF, back in the chair to tell us about his new report on the energy system called Power Failure. Millions of us have been paying too much for our energy. No, I don't trust them, uh, but I feel that I have no choice, so I, I stay put. We need successful energy companies in Britain. We need them to invest for the future. We want to be competitive. We want to offer good value. If we win that election in 2015, the next Labour government will freeze gas and electricity prices. The big six firms have been warned about overcharging. What would happen to vital investment needed to keep the lights on? So Stephen, welcome back. You are now our second most frequent guest on the weekly economics podcast. I'm very honoured. I'm sure you've got James Meadway in your sights. Um, So you've just recently written a paper about the fundamental faults with our energy system. Just to get this straight, uh, what are we talking about when we refer to our our energy system? Where does electricity actually come from? Well, when I'm referring to the energy system, it's something that some people also call the power system. And basically what that means is all the different ways that we get um, energy from where it naturally occurs in the environment. So that's either fossil fuels or wind or sun power. The energy system is the the way, you know, the bits of kit and the institutions and all the relationships that get it from that natural state into a sort of useful form as electricity in our households or workplaces or other places. Okay, simples. So uh, we actually hear quite a lot about problems with the energy system in the media and from our political parties. I know my bills are pretty high too. What are the problems that people are actually facing? Yeah, we, we do hear a lot about it. And I think that's because it's a very present issue for a lot of people. You know, we literally can't live without energy. So it's natural, I think, that it is a massive political issue at the moment. I think in terms of the immediate problems that people, families and individuals are actually facing. It's mainly around affordability. So big energy companies just don't really have any massive requirements to care about inequality and poverty. So for some people, energy is just not affordable. There's also big concerns about the quality of the services provided. Of all the sectors in our economy, energy utilities are by far the least satisfying for consumers. It consistently ranks at the bottom, so that's a huge concern. And obviously there there are the even bigger issues of climate change, which is intrinsically linked to our energy system. Okay, so you've mentioned affordability there, and one of the election debates was around Ed Miliband's proposal to introduce an energy price freeze. Was that a good solution to the problems that you've identified? Well... I think we can praise Ed Miliband for at least trying to find a solution to the problem. And superficially, it does seem like it's quite a radical solution. 
But I think under the surface, really, it is just a case of trying to mitigate symptoms whilst continuing to ignore the the underlying causes. Um, And if you actually look at what what they were proposing, what they were really saying was we're going to freeze prices for 20 months. And whilst that's occurring, what we're going to do is to somehow um, what they called uh, reset the energy market. And basically what they meant by that was just all of the typical things that get wheeled out by all of the sort of mainstream advocates, which is basically to somehow increase competition in the market. So it was really not that fundamentally different from what a lot of other people were suggesting, I think. So it sounds like the problems with the energy system are actually more fundamental than, than a lot of these policymakers might have us believe. They typically just seem to encourage people to shop around for the best deal. Is the answer then more competition between energy companies? Well, yeah, that does certainly seem to be the the main um, understanding, I think, in the mainstream. Um, And and indeed, you had um, Ofgem, which is the energy regulator, referring the whole energy market to the Competition and Markets Authority, which passes judgment on whether the market can be deemed competitive or not. So this is is definitely seen as the major problem. And also the major solution is there's not enough competition, so we need more competition and then everything will be fine. And... You know, don't get me wrong, I think in some cases worrying about competition is the right thing to do. Um, it can have positive impacts on markets and on people's lives. But the problem is just this uncritical assumption that more competition is always better. In fact, in cases where you have very competitive markets, that competition does come with costs and risks as well as benefits. So, for example, um, our big supermarkets, it's a very highly competitive environment. But the fact that you have such strong competition actually leads to these perverse side impacts. So the fact that they can't extract value from each other means that actually they end up attempting to exploit their suppliers, for example, or exploiting consumers in some other way through price obfuscation tactics. So it's not it's not as simple as competition good, no competition bad. We have to be a bit more nuanced about the solutions we're proposing. Okay. And so uh, in the past couple of years, I've certainly seen, you know, the likes of Tesla rise and rise and a lot of clean tech startups are now springing up in London. Do you think that these kind of small companies can compete with the big six and, um, you know, maybe be the answer to the problems in this sector? Yeah, there's this interesting assumption, which is really quite weird, that we sort of fundamentally need these big companies as, as an actual source of wealth. And we seem to forget that you know, where where does this, where do they get their wealth from? They get it from us. They charge us the money. It's us that are funding these companies. So if we didn't have these big companies, yes, we'd have to find some other ways of collectively channeling our, our sort of communal wealth. Um, but that doesn't mean the wealth just disappears altogether. And yeah, there are these smaller, new, um, supposedly more innovative companies like Tesla emerging here and there. And I certainly wouldn't want to detract from the virtues of Tesla, for example. They're, in a lot of ways, they're breaking the mould. They're doing very interesting things around providing their patents for free. So there are good things happening there. But the question is whether or not that is a systemic solution to these huge problems. And what you also need to recognise is that historically, the big solutions to big problems, you know, the really transformational changes have tended to come from the public sector and not from very big companies and not even from these sort of dynamic small companies. So there's a role for for all all different sectors, I think, but it would be wrong to certainly assume that we can just continue with the big six as they are and that they'll deliver the the investment and the innovation that we, we really need. 
So um, moving on to the public sector, what is the government doing to fix these kind of things? I know that they've cut some subsidies to, to renewables. Do you think that they're going to implement these kind of fundamental changes that you've identified? Yeah, I think the cuts to renewables programmes are, are very concerning. You know, you can't just remove the financial support for clean energy and then expect clean energy to continue growing. So I think that that does indicate that this isn't a political priority for for um, the greenest government ever. The greenest government ever. Well, to be fair, that was that was the last one. I think this government isn't even claiming to do that. So uh, we can give them that credit. But as you say, I think they're not even considering some of the the really innovative solutions that are happening in other countries. So, for example, everyone's talking a lot about Germany, um, where a number of different cities are taking back control of their grid. So bringing that back under municipal control because people were just so dissatisfied with private companies. Um, you've got places like Costa Rica where they've achieved basically universal access to energy based on an almost completely, well, certainly dominated by cooperatives in that country. And, and even closer to home, it was recently announced that in Scotland, they're going to set up a new not-for-profit energy provider, which is going to be backed by the government. So the real danger is getting into this false dichotomy of either we have this horrible privatised competitive market or we have a monolithic state um, energy company. The reality is that there's there's a huge array of options in between that and and we need to start thinking a bit more creatively about how we might adopt some of them. Okay, so so given that this is not a political priority, what do you think that we can do now in the UK to start addressing this issue? Well, I think there are two parts to that. The first is we have to make it a priority um, through campaigning and activism and advocacy and the like. You know, we have to make it clear that we care about these things and put it on the agenda. But the second thing is there are there are things that we can do in spite of the lack of priority, I think. And just to take one sort of inspiring example, I guess, the, the town of Balcom, which was the infamous site of um, fracking protests where Caroline Lucas was arrested. They sort of very symbolically rejected the fossil fuel energy system that we're talking about. And what they've done is they've, in place of that, they've created their own solution, which is to set up an energy generating cooperative using solar energy, which will provide enough power for their whole village. So, you know, there are things that we can do on an individual and community level that can start to make the change happen despite the lack of interest from the political sphere. Okay, wonderful. Well, a reasonably sunny note to end on. Thank you so much. This is my favourite topic. So thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about it again, Stephen. You're very welcome. If you want to help us touch more ears with our kick-ass brand of economics goodness, uh, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a cheeky rating, unless it's just the one star, and tell all you see on Facebook, Twitter, MySpace and that new hip cool platform that I'm certainly not aware of yet. We'll be back at the same time next week. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.